Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, March 19th, we are studying Mark chapter 13, verses 32 through 37. Jesus very clearly talks about the last day concerning that day or that hour. How does a Christian approach that last day? Be ready. Stay awake, Jesus says, because you don't know when that day is coming. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz. Dr. Kuntz serves as assistant professor of exegetical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Kuntz, welcome back to Sharp Iron. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So we're talking about the end of Mark chapter 13 today, Dr. Kuntz. It's a long chapter. We've looked at the previous two sections. We get to the end today. What do we need to know going into our text for today? We need to know that as Jesus talks about the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, this second temple rebuilt after the return from exile, he's talking about something that is bigger than just itself. He's talking about the center of his nation uh, coming to an end, but with it, uh, a birth of new hope. And so in our section specifically, we'll see that the reason that he ends the sermon, the teaching this way, is because he's not focused so much on the building as on the people. And he wants the people to be ready for great changes to take place, but yet not to be shaken by these things. They might be afraid, but he doesn't want them to be overcome by fear and overwhelmed and overpowered by fear. So you can see that his purpose throughout the chapter has really been to prepare his group, his disciples, who will grow after his resurrection to include Jews and Gentiles throughout the nation. He wants that group to be ready, even when apocalyptic, enormous, terrifying things happen and great changes are taking place. And and for that group, one of the big things that they would have had to face right away would have been the destruction of the temple, which has occupied a, a pretty big section of this text so far. But there's more to it than that. There are other big events that his people need to be ready to face, including for us today, right? Yeah. And the way to get there to understand that is really to go back into the Old Testament before you read the Gospels and to look at what significance, what meaning, what importance the temple has. Because the temple is not just an architectural achievement of a certain kind. And this second temple is smaller and less impressive until Herod's time than the first temple. It's not just a building. It's not just stones upon stones. The issue of the temple is the issue of God's presence in the world, his availability to his people. And the idea that it would come down means a lot more than just, oh, we have a big mess on our hands and, you know, somebody has to come and clean up this, this building site. It means that God's presence is elsewhere, that God's presence is, or could be unavailable, 
as it was in the sense that the glory did not return to that second temple when they rebuilt it, that glory cloud that had come down in the first temple. So the destruction of the temple contains a lot more meaning for Jesus and the early church than I think people understand when they just think, oh, well, a building came down. Well, why don't, why don't they just build another building or something like that? Right. The significance has to do with where where is God? How do you access God? But I mean, we talked right. about that at the the first the first part of this section where you know the disciples as they're leaving the temple, they're they're admiring the building itself, you know, what magnificent stones. And Jesus, I mean, he just drops a bomb when he tells them, You see them? They're gonna be torn apart. Not one is gonna be left upon another. <laughs> right. And I mean, I, I really think that as the discourse has has progressed from that point, you know, this this building that surely they thought was was permanent, not only in terms of architecture, but especially theologically, this is where God is. That that permanence, you know, Jesus says that's gonna be torn down. And and he really built, I think, to a climax of sorts in the verse right before what we have today, where he says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He's again, when these apocalyptic moments happen, where is the Christian's hope and security? It's not in a building. It's not in anything created at all, but it's in Christ and in his words. And I think that maybe people will understand this a little bit better if they think about things that 2020 took away from them or certainties or certain senses of how things work and how people are. If you think of it that way, it's a little easier to understand why Jesus would connect the destruction of a building by a foreign invading power with the end of the world, because there's a, there's a, there's a movement in and out of language throughout Mark 13. Some of it sounds like he's talking about something that's going to happen soon. Okay. That's the temple. Some of it sounds like he's talking about things that could happen anytime wars and rumors of wars. And the reason he's moving in and out is because he understands that when certain things go away in people's lives, they begin to ask, where is God? Mm. An equivalent in a very personal way is the destruction that Job undergoes at the very beginning of his book, right? When those kinds of things are taken away from you, when your sense of God's blessing or love or peace is taken away from you, then you begin to wonder, is everything coming apart? Or as Job requested, I might as well die now. Mm. So that is why there's so much potential fear that Jesus is trying to head off, and also so much potential confusion, right? The idea that even the elect, theoretically, could be deceived in such evil days. So that's why all of that is there in Mark 13, and I think it's also why Jesus is teaching on these things specifically before his death, because we know from John's Gospel, for instance, that Jesus has been at the temple before during his ministry, John is the one from whom we know he, he ministered for at least three Passovers. But why didn't he say all this? I mean, it's possible he said some of this before, but the connection between teaching on the end of the world and the death of Jesus and the temple is because you're dealing with all kinds of things that lead people to ask the question, where is God? Has he forsaken us? Or in the case of Jesus's imminent death, has he forsaken him? 
let's go ahead and take a look at our text for today and, and keep parsing some of these things out. We're in Mark 13, beginning at verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. That is our text for today, Mark 13, verses 32 through 37. Dr. Kuntz, in verse 32, well, even just looking at verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I mean, Jesus could have ended there, it seems like. That's a that's a pretty, right. that would have been a happy ending to the sermon, maybe. It's a solid landing. <laughs> that's yeah. right. But he keeps going, and, and he says, you know, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. It, it seems like there's a there's a shift here. Uh, I mean, structurally yeah. speaking and, and in topically speaking, what is Jesus doing? How do these words relate to everything that we've heard so far? I don't think Jesus is speaking to no purpose as if he made a good landing and then thought, oh, one more thing. And people have to sort of turn around on their way out the door. I think he understands that the things that he's just said will lead to speculation. Mm. He foresaw the thousands of years of wondering about the last day that goes down to our own day. So knowing that people would think, okay, well, maybe I could figure out when he's going to come. Maybe I could, in fact, calculate when he's going to come as most recently, probably and most famously, Harold Camping did in 2011. I think we were all supposed to be done here on earth in maybe May of 2011. And foreseeing that, he goes on to this final address directed to the disciples. Because I don't think that, that, that the disciples are going to be shaken concerning the idea that his words are powerful. Hmm. So the ending is not going to be about the enduring nature of his words, which is comforting and powerful in its own way. But the ending is going to be about what sort of attitude a disciple should have as the things that Jesus has just predicted in the rest of the chapter are in fact coming to pass. Is, is, is that emphasis of Jesus of, of what he's doing here? Does that provide a bit of a, a corrective to their original question? All the, I mean, it's been a while since we talked about this all the way back in verse four, the disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew initially asked Jesus, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Is, is what he's doing in, in these verses, is it a bit of changing their focus, not, not worrying so much about the question that they did ask and maybe answering the question that he thinks they should have asked? Yeah, because he's distinguishing between their literal question, which he does answer somewhat vaguely in giving a sense that evils will precede his coming, that his coming will be surprising, uh, that the temple will be destroyed for sure. Uh, but it's, it's rather vague. It's not a chronological answer. If you ask me, well, when are you going to be on sharper iron? 
I can give you a date because we have to connect at a certain time and et cetera. Right. I can't say, uh, see that no one leads you astray concerning <laughs> my schedule and my calendar. Right. But what he's doing is he's dealing with them in terms of what they need, not in terms of what they ask. Mm. It's very common in the Bible between God and man. And what they need is something different than what they're asking for. And their need is actually about vigilance, not about chronology. So how, how does that understanding of these verses, the way they relate to the whole chapter, how does that impact how, how we think about the last days, how Jesus teaches about them here in this text? Yeah, when people ask about the last days, they are often curious, which is fine. And it's good that questions about the last days send people into the Bible. But I think that part of the difficulty with a lot of thinking about the last days that lots of folks engage in is that they're looking for chronological answers. The Bible doesn't actually deliver. In fact, Jesus claims that he himself is not actually in control of the timetable. He's not sort of running the railroad in this sense that the father will send him back at his second coming the way the father sent him at his first coming. And so speculation about chronology is doubly fruitless and foolish for people. So if curiosity about the end days or the last time sends you into the Bible, what you want to find there is a sense that you're going to get not just from Mark 13, but also from the end of Ezekiel or the second half of Daniel or all of Revelation, which is a call to vigilance along with a call to firmness in faith. So you don't get the answers about chronology. The Bible's not actually trying to give you chronological answers, but it is trying to strengthen your spirits because the last days, which are, let's be honest, any time now, the last days are dark days necessarily if you're paying attention. I don't think that means that you have to read about every disaster that happened anywhere on the globe that day, but it does mean that if you're realistic, you're going to understand things are bad. And Jesus doesn't want your faith to fail in the face of those evils. Why is it that we do that? Why are we so concerned about these speculations about chronology? Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned in 2011, and honestly, I, I'd kind of forgotten it. Uh, obviously, it didn't happen. It's 10 years later now. <laughs> uh, Obviously, yeah, right. But we, we could, presume, I mean, yeah. we could go through history, and, and I'm probably someone's written a dissertation on this, right? That that of all these people who have once upon a time, some famously, some less famously, have, have said, this is when Jesus is going to come back. I mean, you've got these yep. verses so clear that say, you don't know. Why Why is it that that we constantly see this in our world, people trying to to figure it out? I mean, assuming that the person is well-intentioned, right? Because there are instances, and there are books on that very subject, there are instances where the person doesn't have good intentions, right? And good intentions are not justifying, but they're better than evil intentions. Even if the person has good intentions, I think that the spiritual temptation here is that chronology gives you a greater sense of clarity about certain things that are a little easier to handle. Notice that the group that asked Jesus the question about chronology in verse four is also largely with the addition of Andrew. 
the group that is asking is not only receiving sort of special eye training and gets to witness the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, but also that the sons of Zebedee are often very interested in ranking uh, in each of the gospel. And the issue with ranking and chronology is that it makes things very clear. And I think that the reason that even well-intentioned people fall into that desire to know things that we're not given to know is because well-intentioned people still want some sense of control. Mm. And something that Mark 13 is not giving you is a sense of control over events, especially these cosmically significant events that affect us all, the ending of the world, the return of Jesus Christ in great glory with all the holy angels. We don't have any control over that. And there is something very deep within each of us that doesn't like that fact. I want to die. I want to go. I want this to end in the way that I choose, the way that I've imagined. And when I don't have that kind of control, it's very unsettling. In that way, I mean, it sounds like the question of, of when, in this case, is similar to the question of, of why. There's, it seems that we think we're going to find some kind of a comfort or control in knowing the when or in knowing the why. Well, that's another question right. that gets asked in the Bible over and over. And again, as you said, it's not, it's not wrong to be curious about these things or even to ask. But when the Lord doesn't answer or, or he gives an answer right. that says, I'm not going to answer that, you know, trust me. Then, then to go farther than what he said, that's that's where we fall off, and and really to to recognize that the comfort's not found in knowing the why or the when, but it's simply in in having the promise that Christ gives. Right, exactly. And the disciples are being taught these things, even if they don't yet understand why. And I find that comforting too, because as a disciple of Jesus, it's very comforting to know that the master is providing wisdom for me that I don't yet even know that I need. So Jesus says then that that day, that hour, he says, no one knows. And he specifically says, not the angels in heaven, not the son, only the father. Let's, let's start by just saying, the Father knows. Why is it that only the Father knows? Why is that important? Because within the Holy Trinity, uh, there is both unity, but there is also dissimilarity in that the Father and the Son and the Spirit do not all do exactly the same things, uh, because their relationships to each other differ. We talk about this really in church most clearly, most clearly, on Trinity Sunday when we confess the Athanasian Creed. But what Jesus is saying here specifically is that the Father, like I said earlier, is in control of the timetable. So in the same sense that the Father sends the Son into the world, not that he should judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him, that first sending, there is a second sending in this sense. The Father knows when it's all coming to an end, when it's all found its completion, and then the Father will inaugurate the Son's sending to gather his elect to himself and to judge the entire world. So what Jesus is affirming here is that though he is God himself, his words will never pass away, even though heaven and earth do. Yet there is a distinction of the persons within the Trinity and what they do. 
So, I mean, we would not, and I know this, this verse has, has caused much angst for, for many in the history of the church that if the son doesn't know something, how can he be omniscient? I mean, that, well, how, how do we respond to that? Yeah. Yeah. Because the issue here is that when you take a category, let's say omniscience or omnipotence or something, and then you kind of lay it over your expectations for how God generally or one of the persons of the Trinity should be, then you're going to always end up with a problem in your understanding of the Bible because you assumed the way a father should be. And you said, well, no loving father, for instance, Mm. no loving father would allow his son to die, much less cause his son to die. But the Bible has Jesus saying over and over, it is necessary for the son of man to suffer and die. And so when you're looking at the Bible and you're looking at the Trinity, not a word found in the Bible, what you're simply dealing with in confessing the Holy Trinity and the distinctions among the persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, what they do, according to the Bible, is you're simply letting the Bible talk. And you're letting the Bible tell you, for instance, that the Father and the Son and the Spirit do not have the same role in how they relate to man's salvation at all times, that they have distinctions of roles, even though they are all equally from eternity, one God. So when you're dealing with this, I know it can sound complex, but what Trinitarian Christians, that is to say simply Christians, are doing in confessing the Holy Trinity is simply letting the Bible talk rather than overlaying first, well, how can the son be like this and that, or how can a father do this or that? We don't do that with the text. Mm. Right. The, the word Trinity, as you said, which is not found in the Bible, is, is simply an attempt for us as Christians to, to say, this is what the Bible says about who God is. Right. And, and we're just right. using the word Trinity as a way of saying, this is what the Bible says, not what we're making right. up. And so to, you know, to right. use the word omniscience and then make Jesus, the son, fit into what we've already said omniscience is that's the backwards way we we want to hear what does the bible actually say about who god is and what he does and and as you're as you're talking and as i've been thinking about this i think maybe another way of thinking about this which doesn't strike us as as strange you know it's a part of the father to know the last day it's not part of who the son is it may be in the same way that it is the son who becomes incarnate it is not the Father or the Holy Spirit. I don't think we usually have much trouble saying that, even as strange no. as it may sound. We don't right. have too much trouble confessing the Son's the one who becomes incarnate for us, not the Father, Holy Spirit. In a similar way, I think we would say the Father's the one who knows this, not the Son or the Holy Spirit. Is that a fair comparison to make? Yeah, precisely, because what you're dealing with is simply a distinction of roles. And similarly, on Judgment Day, the father is not the judge. The son is the judge. Does this mean that the father has nothing to do with the judgment of mankind? No, of course not. He's God. Of course, he knows what's happening. He knows what's going on. He knows what's going to happen. But the action of judgment is commended to the son, is is given into the son's hands. And so there's always a distinction here of what roles each person has, even as they are all uniquely and from all eternity, one single triune God. 
with Jesus specifically saying that, you know, the son does not know, I, I think I've heard it said that perhaps there's an example here that if Jesus doesn't need to know when the last day is, neither do you, Peter, James, John, yeah. Andrew, and, and disciples today. Is, is there something to that? Yeah, because you have a chain in the text that runs from no one knows, then you go, and this is not really biblical, but it is sort of uh, popular, and you can tell it was popular even in biblical times, but the idea that somehow angels are greater than men, Hmm. um, which is how you get angel worship or potential angel worship. Uh, But they go from no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, glorious as they are, nor the Son, glorious as, as he is, but only the Father. And so the issue there is, if the angels don't know, and the Son doesn't know, then it's not yours to know. That's really the force of the point, and the main subject of the sentence is to say, no one knows. Mm. Right, and, and that means not you, Peter, James, John, <laughs> right. Andrew, and it means not you today, Christian. You don't know either, and and don't don't speculate. Rather, as you said, the call is to vigilance. The call is to firmness of faith. And we're going to hear Jesus repeat that several times in this text. And we're going to pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFU. have Dr. Adam Kuntz with us looking at the end of Mark chapter 13. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, March 19th. We are looking at Mark 13, verses 32 through 37. We have Dr. Adam Kuntz with us. He serves as Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Kuntz, prior to the break, we were talking about that first verse of our text. No one knows, not the angels, not the Son, only the Father, and so by way of extension, not you, disciples. Jesus has something other for his disciples besides speculating or trying to calculate chronology. In verse 33, he says, be on guard, keep awake. And then he repeats, you don't know when it's going to come. Those words keep awake, they, they show up there in verse 33, and then Jesus repeats it again and again. And we've only got a couple verses, but he says it a lot. Why does he say that so much in just this short span? Well, you know, if you do any public speaking of any kind for your job, or if you're a pastor, obviously you do public speaking, that your beginning and your ending are probably the most important parts for memory. So people will learn things, hopefully, throughout your speech, whatever you're talking about. But the beginning and the ending are, in many ways, the most important parts. And remember, Jesus is a speaker or a preacher, not a writer. Hmm. So he... Speaking 
Yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I I, I just say so. So he he begins and ends with his main point, and then he keeps doing it. And you're saying he's a he's a speaker, not a writer. Keep going. Yeah, because the fact that he peppers, which is really just one word in Greek, Gregoreta. We we have the we have the name Gregory in English from this verb. For him to keep awake and to and to tell them to keep awake at the very end. If they don't remember exactly what he said about, okay, well, what's going to happen in Jerusalem in those days? And is it, is it nursing mothers or women with infant children or just pregnant women? Or what's the, who's in danger in Jerusalem in those days? If they can't remember all the stuff from, say, like the, the middle third of, the, of what he said, they can remember that he said three times at the very end, stay awake, keep awake. And so you can tell that for him, it is the main force intention. Here's what he wants to achieve. He wants people who are awake. He doesn't need disciples who are really good with chronological calculations. That's pointless. It's not given them to know, but it is given them to be vigilant, to keep awake. And so he, he peppers the very end of the sermon with this exhortation to stay awake. Now, that means when you look back at the whole rest of the chapter, that a lot of things could cause you figuratively to fall asleep. And that's really an interesting insight on discipleship, because it means that a lot of things about being a disciple are not about sort of spectacular moments, but about being a night security guard who is bored and alone and you have to stay awake. You got to stay up. You got to watch. And so th- this is really a call for endurance more than anything else, because a lot of the things that he's talked about in this chapter are not just scary. They could cause you to spiritually fall asleep or let's say sort of figuratively, they could cause you to fall asleep on the job. Mm. And that is a very great danger. So he's, preaching against that great danger right at the end. Well, and I think that that kind of ties together. We Just the way that we divided this up as we've studied it, we did verses 1 through 13. That one, that section ends with Jesus saying, the one who endures to the end will be saved. We right. then took 14 through 31, which again ends, as we said earlier, my words will not pass away. And here you get this, this peppering of stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. I mean, that, that does then, you know, flavor the way that you read the whole thing. Go back again, read what Jesus has said, and, and see the various ways that you might fall asleep and how Jesus is calling for you as his disciple to stay awake and, and what that means. And I mean, that, that really does help, I think, to, to tie this whole chapter together and everything that Jesus has said about the destruction of the temple, the end of all things, and, and everything in between – what what's his ultimate goal? It's that you would stay awake. Right. Precisely. Because the danger that's going to be coming is that you would be lulled to sleep by whatever else is going on. It's really very similar to all the way back in Mark four with the parable of the sower and the idea that the stuff that pulls people away, that prevents the growth of the word of the Lord those things are fairly mundane in the same sense that somebody who's sleepy at one thirty in the morning who really needs to stay awake until five o'clock in the morning or six o'clock in the morning, we can understand 
that he fell asleep at one thirty in the morning. I mean, I want to be asleep at one thirty in the morning. So these sorts of these threats are not necessarily like fire and blood and sword. They could be. The temple is going to fall down. The Romans are going to invade Jerusalem, and there will be wars and rumors of war. But a lot of the challenges to discipleship are very mundane and sneaky, like sleep sneaking up on you at one thirty in the morning. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that's the image that Jesus puts in the disciples' minds here in this section. He, he talks about a man who goes on a journey, leaving home, puts servants in charge, and, and particularly it seems that Jesus in this short little story focuses on the doorkeeper whose job it is to stay awake. What, what is, take us into the scene that Jesus gives us. And it's a great little scene, and, I, and if it were maybe two verses longer, it would get to be called its own parable, right. you know, which would be fantastic, because it's a great picture of life between Jesus's ascension to the Father's right hand and Jesus's return with all his holy angels. And the picture is that there's a man who has to go away. There's no real option in the story that he's going to stay home. So he's going to go away and he's going to go on a journey and he leaves and he puts his servants or more literally from the Greek, his slaves, which is exactly what people like Paul are going to call themselves a slave of Jesus Christ. He puts his slaves in charge of the household, each with his work. I love that detail too, because it gives you a sense that the work's going to go on. We're going to see this at the end of Mark 16. The work goes on. The disciples continue the work as commanded. And he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Now, what's funny about that is it makes everybody listening to the story the doorkeeper, right? So, you know, you can imagine that you're in Jesus's household. Uh, The church is called the household of God in Ephesians, but here everybody is the doorkeeper. So your, your only job, he makes it very simple in these terms, your only job is to stay up so you can open the door. That's it. You don't have to do anything else. You can sit there. You can, you know, scroll on your phone, whatever. Just stay awake. That's the only job. And so that picture gives you a certain simplicity uh, that Jesus is providing at the end of a lot of things that are complicated, true, but complicated. How am I going to deal with war? And are we going to have to run away from Jerusalem? We'll see in Acts that the church does have to get away from Jerusalem, but for a different reason before the destruction of the temple. You know, all of these sort of complexities that you can imagine in the time to come, those are all things you can focus on. What Jesus focuses on is he teaches us about the end of the world. Can you imagine anything more complex? Is the very simple idea that you just need to stay awake. You don't have to do anything impressive. Nobody thinks the doorkeeper is such an amazing guy. He doesn't have any amazing skill. He just opens the door and closes the door. That's it. But it's simple, but it can be hard. It can be very hard to stay awake. But I like this simplicity that Jesus is focusing us on because it really boils it down very clearly. Stay awake. Watch for me. Well, and I mean, even even with that detail that you pointed out that his servants are in charge each with his work. You know, I mean, and, and now uh, thinking through some of the other gospels and some of the other parables that Jesus does tell in connection with the end times. I mean, you think about the various ways that his servants do work in these times, even with that, as, as you said, that complexity, 
no matter what you're doing as his servant, whatever that work is that he's given you to do, it comes back to stay awake in that work. Right. I mean, you know, there, right. there's not the like there's not the measurement of how well did you do this work that Jesus gave you to do. The question is, did you stay awake in that work? Right. Right. Because it, it resembles this one little verse is really a compression of the parable of the talents. Mm. And the issue in the parable of the talents is not that some had more and some had less. I mean, people sort of fixate on that because equality is kind of, that's our, that's our yardstick for everything. But the issue in the parable of the talents is not some had more, some had less. It's the attitude with which what you did have was either made fruitful through labor in the master's service or the guy who kind of never envisioned that Jesus would come back and ask him what he did. And so he said, well, I, you know, I knew you were kind of a jerk. So I just hit the talent and here it is back. I didn't do anything. Uh, the, the insight there is that the attitude or the belief that you have about the master is actually what's going to drive whether or not you stay awake and active in his service, that the one who's awake and active is somebody who believes certain things about the master believes, for instance, that the master is going to come back and he's going to have to render account to the master. The one who hides the talent believes that the master is going to be kind of a jerk and doesn't should do his own work. And who is he to demand me to do something and therefore buries the talent. And then is a little surprised to find he has to give account to the master too. So there's a lot about the Christian life compressed into this one little sentence in Mark, but it does boil down to all you got to do is stay awake. Mm-hmm. I think bringing in the parable of the talents is really helpful there. And I like the way that you, you explained this is just, you know, the parable of the talents compressed into, well, that's very marketing yeah. to do, you know, to, yeah, to, to summarize yeah. things and, and to do it, do it very <laughs> shortly like that. I mean, the, the, and the difference is exactly as you said, it's about what do they believe about the master and what's, what's astounding about that parable is, is what they end up believing about the master. That's actually what, what he gives them. I mean, like the right. first two servants trust that their master is going to be generous and, and they find that he is, and, and that is actually who he is. And that last servant, you know, he, he believes that the master is going to be hard. And then the master, and this is the tragedy of it. The master actually gives the servant what he wanted and, and it ends up being quite terrible for him. Yeah, exactly. And, and you find that all over the Bible, uh, but probably the clearest place is in Psalm 18, where you get mention that with the righteous, you show yourself righteous, but with the wicked, you make yourself seem tortuous. And so you do receive what you believe about the master. That is your belief, your trust does govern your relationship to the master. This is how justification in really the entirety of the Christian life comes by faith. And I think one thing that is underrated about Mark, because he is a genius of brevity, of being clear and short, maybe less about being clear than about being short, but what he is a genius at doing is expressing the idea throughout his gospel that Jesus is not somebody that I always understand, but he's somebody whose words and actions are always calling me to believe. Because if I'm not in control, then the only thing that I really 
<laughs> and capable of doing at this point is saying, yes, well, your words were never cast away. So I believe your words, Jesus. Uh-huh. And that, that struggle that faith has with Jesus is something that you'll find throughout Mark and, and no less here than anywhere else. Right. I mean, that, that takes me back to the, it's in Mark chapter nine, after they come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and there's that, that father who's brought his demon-possessed son, who prays, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I mean, I, in, in many ways, I yep. think that prayer, that that's, that's what, um, among other things, right? Of course, Mark is driving us toward the confession of Jesus, you are the son of God that we hear from the centurion at the cross. But I think that prayer there in Mark chapter nine is, is one that Mark would have us put on our lips as well. You know, Lord, right. I believe help my unbelief. Right. Precisely. So pastor Philippek, pastor Philippek, I just got done talking to him. Actually, You're, <laughs> you have the same first name, Adam Coons, Adam Philippek. Sorry. Anyways. <laughs> so Dr. Coons, Jesus, in in telling this short parable, he gives this detail. You, know, you don't know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows, in the morning, is, is there something to these various times? Is he is that just part of the storytelling? What's going on there? Yeah, I think that's a tremendously helpful sequence because what you have to imagine is, okay, uh, if light goes away, it's going to be hard to make a journey. And even with massive availability of electricity in our vehicles and outside our vehicles, even today, it's fairly unusual for grandma to arrive for a visit with a family at two o'clock in the morning. So there are certain times that people are going to think, well, Jesus is coming back now. And there are other times that people don't think about it as much and certainly not on the same scale. So it may be that there was in, you know, 1984, when the American economy was doing fairly well, it probably was the case in 1984 that there were fewer people in the United States thinking, I wonder if Jesus is going to come back soon, than there are, let's say, today, with the unemployment rate that we have. Hmm. There are more people thinking, is Jesus going to come back at the time of the Black Death? In Europe, when in some places, you know, 70% of a city is going to die in a matter of years, then there are, you know, 300 years later. So there are times where I think the return of Jesus and the end of the world are going to seem likelier to people than others. And the point of that sequence is he moves from seems likely, like people arrive home around dinner time. That makes sense. It makes a lot less sense to arrive home when the rooster crows, which is like before dawn, depending on your rooster. And so the idea that Jesus will come back at a likelier time, a time that makes a little more sense for me, for him to come back, is not on the table either. So this is a little bit different from thinking about chronology because this is sort of like looking at some of the signs that have been given earlier in the chapter and saying, okay, well, we're in a world war right now. So Jesus has to come back soon because this is way bigger than just rumors of war. So even the idea that you would take the signs earlier in the chapter and then apply them and say, okay, this is as bad as I've ever thought it could be in the place and time that I'm alive. That doesn't mean Jesus is coming back now. He could come back when, you know, 
your uh, 401k is doing great and uh, your kids are just got, all got out of the house and they're happily married and you're about to go on vacation for two weeks. Mm. He could come back right then too. Mm. So this is about human likelihoods and the fact that God doesn't have to pay any attention to them. That's right. I mean, and it's always so. I mean, as as a pastor, you know, you'll you'll hear things like, and right now, the pandemic is not a bad example. I think the pandemic has taught us to pray more fervently, come Lord Jesus, to to long yeah. for His coming, and that's not a bad thing. You know, I right. mean, we we should pray that, and and you'll you'll hear, you know, as a pastor, well, well, pastor, things are really bad right now. Don't you think that that Jesus is going to be coming soon? And the answer, of course, is well, yes, I do. But I, I thought that the day before too, and and I'll think it tomorrow, regardless, you know, I mean, yes, Jesus, Jesus return is closer now than it was yesterday, simply because we've just gone one more day, regardless of what's happening in the world. And, and as you're, you're you're talking about those times when we, when we're maybe less likely to long for Jesus return, I mean, those are, that's kind of a a scary thought. And then even, you know, think of the the greatest blessings that we have in this life are are being married, having kids and the great joy that comes at those moments. At at those moments, there's maybe a temptation to think, you know, I I wouldn't mind it if Jesus held off on coming just so I can enjoy this for a few more months or, or, you know, just so I can get to that moment. And, and all of a sudden now, well, I mean, I think that's probably what Jesus is talking about when he, at least among other things, that's falling asleep. Yeah, it is. And I, and I, I think that this is something that applies not just to the end of the world, but also to death. Mm. People's idea that not only will everything go on forever, uh, isn't just something that gets applied to the world. And notice that when that phrase, all things continue as they have since the beginning of creation, that phrase is found in the mouth of unbelievers in the New Testament, mm. not in believers now. But people don't just think about that in unbelieving terms about how old the earth is or something, or how long things will go on the way they always have. They usually, and more dangerously, think that about their own lives. Because the dangers, as we talked about a little bit earlier, just linking it up with the parable of the sower, which is so descriptive of how the kingdom works, the dangers are generally personal dangers. They're the dangers that I'm going to fall in love with my stuff, or my sense of a good life, or my money. And when I fall in love with those things, the reason that Jesus talks about the deceitfulness of riches, or the reason that the love of money is the root of evil, is not because money itself is evil, any more than family or children themselves are evil. These, these are all great blessings, children and family, more than anything, if you look at Psalm 127 or 128 way more than money, no question. But it can all lull me to sleep if that's what I'm living for and if that's what I'm looking for. If it somehow convinces me that I'm not looking for Jesus to return, that I'm not looking for he, him to take me from this veil of tears. Mm. you know. And that's, that's easy to remember when things are going poorly because I just get less attached to the world. Mm. But if the world gives me lots of reasons to stay attached then it's a lot harder to remember to stay awake. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I thought that thinking about the the book of Job, you know, for for Job, after you get through chapter two, for him to pray, come Lord Jesus, after chapter two, 
I mean, great. Of course, he's going to pray it there. But then by the end, when when all those things have been restored to him, is he still praying, come Lord Jesus? And I, I think the book of Job would lead us to say, yes, he he is, and yes, we should, you know? But I mean, I think that, that end of the spectrum, at least pre-pandemic, I think is where, I mean, I know that's where I would find myself more often, is, is not so much all these things have been taken away from me, will I believe, but the question is, I've, I've got so much, will I stay awake? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, and I think usually, scripturally, to have too much is a far greater danger than to have too little. Um, I think Luther is perceptive when he talks about possessions in the large catechism in saying that generally uh, to have very, very little is a great danger, but a much greater danger and a more common danger is to have too much. Now, Pat, Pat, um, Dr. Kuntz, we've, we've got here this theme of staying awake, not falling asleep. We've got about six minutes here to, to flesh that out a little bit. As, as you said earlier, you know, we're talking here and we're not talking about literally falling asleep. You know, I'm going to go to sleep later tonight and it's going to be great. I'm going to enjoy my rest as long as my kids don't wake me up in the middle of the night. So, I mean, we're not talking about physical sleep here. And, right. and there are other places where the Bible uses this imagery of being awake and being asleep. And I think in different ways. Earlier today, I actually heard the, the hymn, Wake, Awake, for Night is Flying, which goes with the parable of the 10 bridesmaids, the 10 virgins in Matthew 25. And there, all the bridesmaids actually do fall asleep. So, I mean, the right. scriptures use this imagery of being asleep, being awake in different ways in different places. With right. these last five, six minutes that we've got here, how is Jesus using it here? What do, how do we take this and use this as Christians today? Right. Yeah, and a good place to begin is where you started with the idea that this is not about literally falling asleep, because sleep is also a gift in the Psalms. He gives to his beloved sleep. You commend yourself into God's care. You could use Psalm 4 or Psalm 91 to do that. And he gives to his beloved sleep and rest. But the issue here is that whether I'm waking or sleeping, that I am alive to the Lord, that I do not fall asleep, not literally, but figuratively. And figuratively falling asleep means this certain sluggishness of the spirit or attachment to things that will pass away that rust, that rust and moth can corrupt and destroy in terms of the Sermon on the Mount. And when I attach myself to things that can go away, like the temple in Jerusalem or gold or whatever it is that I value more than Christ, what I'm going to find in falling asleep is that I will eventually have a rude awakening. That at his coming, whether I'm dead or I'm still alive at, at his coming, that I will have a rude awakening to the fact that, that all that stuff that I was really attached to just didn't matter. It just didn't matter. It had no bearing on Judgment Day or anything after that. It really didn't matter. And one of the things that Jesus is doing throughout this whole chapter is giving his disciples perspective. And I think that's something that when we talk about uh, having time to pray and read the Bible, or when we talk about the idea of listening carefully to a sermon, the reason for that is that there's a certain amount of quiet reflection about your life 
that is actually necessary. It's totally, absolutely non-negotiable for a Christian's life because you need perspective. And Jesus is giving his disciples perspective by, by putting them on this hill. It's really a hill. I mean, it's not a mountain, like a rocky mountain, mountain on this hill, the Mount of Olives above Jerusalem. So they're not looking at Jerusalem from inside any more than a lot of times when you do something stupid or you become really attached to things that are going to go away when you're in the midst of it, it's really hard to think, okay, this doesn't actually matter. Right. He's giving them a perspective on Jerusalem that gives them a sense of this city as something that could go away as they have ever known it. That could go away. When you get that perspective, not just on Jerusalem or on the temple, but on heaven and earth, on your life, the lives of your loved ones, everybody's life, that this could just go away. And in fact, one day it will, as you currently know it, as you've ever experienced it. That gives you a different sense of the future. And I think above all, it gives you a sense of the future as controlled by Jesus rather than as controlled by your experience or your expectation, which would want you to, you know, figure out when things are going to happen and how you can control the timetable. Instead, the future and also the present, as also the past, whether you knew it or not, are all under God's control. And that's the good news of Mark 13, is that if it's not under my control, and it is frightening, and it is uncertain, it is under God's control. Dr. Adam Kuntz is the assistant professor of exegetical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana helping us this morning with Mark chapter 13, verses 32 through 37. Dr. Kuntz, thanks for being our guest today. It's been my pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Mark chapter 13, what we've just covered, or Mark chapter 14, and the rest of the gospel coming up, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.